have you ever found yourself greeted by someone and they ask you the common social convention of, hey, how are you? And you know that things are not good, but your inclination is to say what? I'm good. I'm fine, right? Everything goes... Because in our world, when we ask that question, we're not really look off usually. I don't mean to impose on you. But typically, people are not actually looking for an answer to that. It's just another way of saying hello, right? But oftentimes, what we find in the Psalms at least in my experience, is it's as if someone has asked the person writing the psalm, how are you? And they're going to actually tell us. right? They're going to actually tell us just how they are. And I'll be honest with you, I think I've told you this before, the psalms are some of the hardest uh, passages of the Scriptures for me to relate to because that's just not how I'm wired. right? Going deep into those things, that doesn't mean I'm right and the psalmists are wrong. Far from it. It's actually the opposite. Uh, but... There's a, there's a well of emotions that come up into it, and, and sometimes it's hard to navigate through and make sense of it. So, the psalm that we're going to study together today is one of those psalms. It's kind of filled with emotion, and it's as if someone asked David, David writes Psalm 25, so if someone asked him, hey, how are you? And he said, do you have three hours, <laughs> right? Uh, and he's just going to spill his guts for a little bit. But I think it's really important because... He doesn't just spill his guts. He gets to deep questions of the soul. And when we get to those questions, then we're really getting to places of truth and transformation. So, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to Psalm 25. Maybe it's making sense why we prayed the way we prayed right before we let the kids go. They're probably all depressed back in kids' ministry now. Uh, Psalm 25, this is what David writes. He says, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. But shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior. My hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in His ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them His way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of His covenant. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive My iniquity, though it is great. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they would choose, they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity, and their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him, he makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress. Take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies. How fiercely they hate me. Guard my life 
rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in You. May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope, Lord, is in You. Deliver Israel, O God, from all their troubles. The Word of God. David comes to this psalm feeling a lot of feelings, right? Uh, And some of you are like, that wasn't a lot of feelings. There are psalms that have more feelings. You're right. We probably won't make it to those uh, because it's me teaching, right? At any rate, we don't know the exact situation of David's life that Psalm 25 comes from, but we know many of the stories of David's life. We've seen his highs and his lows. We've seen uh, the moments of terror in his life when he's running for his life. We've seen uh, the pain and the agony that he deals with. And so we could position this psalm really at any moment of David's life and make great sense from it. There seem to be four things that are really on his heart and that he's really feeling in the midst of this. The first thing I think is fear. David is fearful. And this would make sense. David spent a lot of his life on the run, living in caves, living in foreign lands. He spent tons of time in battle, and he also spent lots of time looking over his shoulder, uncertain of who he could trust, fearing not only foreign enemies, fearing not only people within his nation, but even people within his family. This was David's life. And I wonder how the psalm hits you today. I wonder what your enemies are like. I wonder if you were asked to name your enemies what you would write or what you would say. Because like David, our enemies are numerous and they're great And we could agree with him that they hate us. (laughs) Enemies both external and internal. Enemies both living (laughs) and inanimate. I wonder how the psalm hits you this morning. What fears are gripping you today? What things are making life uncertain for you and bringing fear? What has you on the run or hiding in a proverbial cave? What has you at war or in battle? What is it that has you constantly looking over your shoulder, wondering who you can trust? See, the feelings that David felt weren't his alone to feel. They're feelings that we feel often as human beings. The second thing I think that David is feeling is what I'll call pain right? or hurt. Those are some of the words that David uses. I'm afflicted. Feel my anguish. Right? When's the last time you used the word anguish? You know, It's deep. It's visceral. My distress. My troubles. In fact, we read from the NIV... The NIV does a really poor job of translating verse 1. If you have a different translation, you're probably like, that doesn't even make sense, right? 
a better translation of verse 1 is, to you, Lord, I lift up my soul. There's a sense in which David is speaking from his heart. His heart is heavy and he's, he's lifting it up to God. And we think about David's life. We think about the tragedies that enumerate his life. The loss of an infant son. The betrayals that happen all throughout his family line. The people who he's trying to serve and honor who have turned on him and who are chasing him and oppressing him. We think about the pain and the hurt that is significant. And I wonder how this psalm hits you today. I wonder what pain marks your life in these moments. Or what scars, even from the past, really aren't fully healed. I wonder what betrayal you're dealing with. Or loss and hurt. This world is vicious. And it leaves its marks on us. And the truth of the matter is that our fears and our pain both work together to either produce or exacerbate a feeling of loneliness, don't they? You get this sense from David? In fact, he says it. I'm lonely and afflicted. Why? Because we get consumed within our fears and our pain, uh, suggesting that no one can even begin to comprehend or understand what we're feeling or what we're facing. And I need to say something to you. To a degree, that's true. No one is going to be able to parse it just the way you have personally experienced it. And here's David, alone in caves, on the run, wondering who's on his side, trying to figure things out, isolated and alone. And I wonder this morning how the psalm hits you. <laughs> In what ways have you found yourself isolated? In what ways have you suggested no one understands what I'm going through? But it's not just those things because David is also feeling a sense of what we can call guilt. Did you get that as we read through there? He's like revisiting his sin constantly. You hear that? He's even revisiting it from his youth. He's like, don't remember the sins of my youth. In fact, David uses three different words for sin in this psalm. And I think he does it because it's comprehensive. The first word is just kind of the word we get our word sin from. It's like wrong stuff. And then it's, the second word is the word we read that's translated in the NIV, rebellion. right? Or, or maybe in some older English translations, it's the word we get, trespass. Remember that word when you're growing up in Sunday school? Trespass. Like, that means to like break God's rules, right? We do wrong, no, now we're actually breaking God's rules. And then the last word is the word iniquity, which is just like a big sounding word that just means guilty. That you're carrying guilt because of it. And David doesn't mince words. He says that my iniquity, my guilt, is great. And he's carrying it. There's a sense in which he understands the doctrines of forgiveness and truths theoretically about God, but perhaps hasn't fully experienced it in his being. And I wonder how the psalm hits you this morning. How sin has affected your life. How it has marked you. 
the guilt that you are carrying, even from your youth. And then we get to the thing that seems to be the driving force of this psalm. David is feeling a sense of uncertainty. Now, this could come because he's feeling all of those things. Fear, pain, loneliness, and guilt. All that big combination. That'll make you uncertain, won't it? We know because we've experienced it. But David is asking for guidance and being led and helping. I'm caught in a trap. Move me forward. There's a sense in which he knows the end goal, but he's not certain of the next step. Ever felt like that in your life? Like, I know where I'm going, but I have no idea the next step I'm going to take. Or maybe better said, I know the next step I'm supposed to take. I have no idea how to do it. Right? Or we could even put it better, I think, in terms of understanding David here. He's like, I'm not certain I can keep going. You ever felt like that before? Like treading water. Trying to keep your head above water. Not certain what the next step is or how to do it, or if you can keep going. I wonder how the psalm hits you this morning. Perhaps you have big life decisions in front of you, and you're really facing a sense of, I'm not certain what's next. I don't think that's what this psalm is about, but that might be where you're at. Or perhaps you're just a sense of feeling like, COVID, politics, the world, trying to live a countercultural life like Jesus calls me to. We are swimming against the current in this world. And guess what? It's super tiring. We know where we're going, but we're not certain we can take the next step or the next stroke or how to do it. David, in a sense, finds himself somewhat paralyzed. Or to use his real language, his foot is stuck in a trap, right? In the net. Now, this is not a real trap that someone has set. This is a sense of being stuck. So one of the things he asks of God is that God would come and, and snatch him away. Right? That's the, the real language of rescue. It asks like, free him from this trap. But as we listen to David wrestling with the truth of how he feels, right? he's just been honest with us for all of history to deal with in Psalm 25. Uh, and he's been honest with God in this psalm. This is, this is how I'm feeling. But then he goes deeper, and he begins to get the sense of what's actually going on in his soul. And this is really important for us, because when we're feeling all of these things, oftentimes it's because we have unanswered questions deep within us. Or these things are causing us to re-ask questions that we thought were settled. And there are three profound questions that are going on in David's soul that he is revealing to us here that I think are so central for all of life that we need to understand. And I think as I say them to you, you'll resonate. You've heard them in the psalm and you'll have experienced them in your life. First question that David is asking quite clearly is, will I be ashamed? Am I going to be ashamed? Right? Here's a guy who's trying to live God's way. Lots of failures, but he's trying to live God's way. And the question of his soul is, hey, listen, everything isn't lining up super rosy, by the way, from this cave here where I'm hiding. Or, uh, you know, on the run from my son who's trying to usurp the throne from me. Or 
in the mess of my tears as my infant son passes into eternity. Things aren't going so well here. Everything's not lining up so perfectly. Am I doing the right thing by living your way? Or am I going to be ashamed? Right? The shame, there's a sense of embarrassment here, right? We'll put it in modern day language. Am I going to be embarrassed? Am I going to be made to look like a fool for making the choices I've made? Now, I don't think that David means a particular singular choice. Because we know that David knows sometimes following God is going to mean we're going to look like fools, right? And David himself said that, right? You remember, even his, his first wife, when, David, when the Ark of the Covenant came in, it's a very weird story, right? David may or may not be naked. We don't know exactly what's going on. And he's dancing like a crazy person, you know? And his wife's like, you are making a fool of yourself. And he's like, yeah, call me a fool, right? This is what it means to, to live God's way. So we know that David understands, in a sense, like individual choices. Sometimes the world's going to look at us and be like, that's weird. Why are you being generous with your money? You should keep that for yourself and buy nice things for yourself. Why are you loving your neighbor? Why are you loving your enemy? That doesn't make sense. Right? The world is going to call us foolish for doing these things. David's really asking the question, at the end of my life, at the end of this whole journey, like if I am able to, in a post-mortem way, examine this life, am I going to have looked like a fool? Because the deeper question here is not really a question of embarrassment. It's a question, a question of... Are you going to let me down, God? Are you going to let me down? In other words, is like all the things you've promised, is it actually not going to happen that way? Have you ever been honest and let your soul ask that question? <laughs> we want to know. But see, there's a deeper question than that that's actually going on here in David's soul. And the deeper question is to God, can I trust you? Right? Am I going to be ashamed? There's a deeper question than that. Can I trust you? And David's talking an awful lot about trust in this psalm, but he's talking about it because the question is real in his heart. He's trying to remind himself and reaffirm it to himself. And he's asking the question, like, hey God, you said I'm going to be king, and then I spent all this time on the run. Or you said prosperity and all these things, and, and these other things are happening. Can I can I actually trust you? And, and we're not talking about the sense here of, of belief, right? Because in our modern world, we think of belief very intellectually, don't we? So David's not asking the question, are you really God? He's not asking the question, are you all-powerful? He's not asking the, those kind of questions. He's asking questions of the will, the questions of volition, questions of action. Hey, in my life, as I order it this way around you, can I actually trust you? Are you going to be good? Are you who you say you are? Because there's a deeper question, right? It's not just can I trust you. It's also, are you good? And this is the ultimate question of the psalm. This is the very thing that the whole psalm is driving towards as David is honest about his circumstances and digs deep in his soul because this is the ultimate question behind all the questions that our soul has towards God. It's the question we need answered the most. Is God actually good? 
Well, we don't mean capable of good. We mean good in all He does. Can we trust Him? Well, the only way we can know that is if we know if He's good. Will we be ashamed? The only way we know that is if we know if we can trust Him by knowing if He's good. How you answer this question, is God good, determines everything about how you live and order your life. How you answer the question, is God good, will determine every single thing about how you live and order your life. It's why A.W. Tozer wrote in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, that the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. And David knows this. And deep in his soul, this question is actually answered, even though externally he's wrestling. He knows that the Lord is good. And so this psalm is actually an exercise in speaking truth to his own heart about who God is. And so, I would say to you, before we even go forward and explain the goodness of God, that the better application of this psalm than a couple of points about God's goodness, we'll go there in a minute, is actually to follow the model of the psalmist. Because this is how true transformation takes place in your heart. right? If you're trying to just deal with surface level issues of fear or anxiety or uncertainty or whatever, without getting to the true questions of the soul, you will struggle to have true transformation. You might make changes here and there. It's like putting Band-Aids on things. But sometimes, you know, blood is gushing and a Band-Aid isn't going to stop the bleeding. But when we get deep into our soul and we ask the true questions and we acknowledge our personal experience in the world in honesty, as the psalmist does, that's where we actually can meet God for who He is. Most of us don't have this kind of transformation because we struggle to believe that we're actually allowed to be honest with God. Right? We, we know preachers tell us we can, but we still don't. And why? Because we don't believe God's actually good. Because if we confront Him with our struggle in life, what we're actually saying to him is, hey, you haven't done it like I have, and we think that God's response is going to be what? Punitive, right? Oh, really? You don't like me? How about this? <laughs> See, it all comes back to this unanswered question of the soul. I spent time recently with a person I've known for, for a long time, and she's going through some significant things in her life right now. And in talking to her, it was very easy to see that all of it comes back to this singular question. Are there real issues of fear and things that a regular human would be fearful of? Absolutely. Is there uncertainty? Is there pain and hurt? Is there guilt from sin? You better believe it. But below all of that, the driving issue is that this question hasn't been answered in its finality. Is God good? So, we need to follow the method of the psalmist if we're going to be transformed people. That is, being truthful about what we're feeling, going deep into the questions of the soul. I would suggest to you that almost always the deepest question is, is God good? And then, 
you don't stop there, because then that's, if you stop there, that's just morbid introspection. That's going to lead to what, like colossal depression and nowhere forward. Then you've got to become a preacher, right? You notice that everyone's a preacher, right? We talk about this all the time. You've got to preach the truth of who God is to your heart and to your soul. But your soul's not listening until you start answering the questions it's asking. You see this? And this is exactly what David's doing in this psalm. He's preaching the gospel to his soul. Right? He's saying, okay, soul, I know the question that's driving all these emotions I'm feeling here is, is God good? Well, here's what I'm going to tell you. He is good. And here's how I know. And there are four things that David comes up with in this psalm. Perhaps they stuck out to you as we read. We know that God is good because to those who need guidance, to those who, who find themselves in uncertainty, God provides guidance. Listen to the things David says to his soul. He says them, this is fascinating. It's as if he's talking to God, but he's talking to God with imperatives, right? He's like commanding God what to do. It's kind of fascinating, but really it should tell us how this internal transformative process ought to work for us. He says things to God like, teach and instruct, right? And there's this sense of, of, of repetitive lessons that are going on. And he's really what he's doing is reminding his soul of the truth that this is what God does all the time. He's constantly teaching and instructing. And for David, looks, this is why God has given them the Torah, right? It's why God's given them the law to help them live God's way and to show them what, what they've done. And, and for us, that's why we have the Scriptures, right? The Scriptures are not something God gave so you have homework every day. Right? You know that, right? The Bible is given to us so that God can guide us because He loves us, because He's good. Do we always understand exactly what's going on in the Bible and how to make sense of it in 2022? No. But that's why God also gives us leaders in the church. That's why God gives us a church. That's why God gives us brothers and sisters who can speak into our lives. How good is God that He's given us so many vehicles to speak truth and instruction to us. David is reflecting deeply with his psalm about God's goodness that guides. But it doesn't stop there, right? It's not just that. He says, this is a fascinating little verse in there. He says, God actually confides in you. Right? It's all, the language is almost as if God is telling you a secret. This is fascinating, isn't it? Now David relates the secret to God's covenant, right, with him. But there's a sense in which what's really going on here in the Hebrew language is, is speaking of intimacy, right? That is that God doesn't just guide us by giving us Scripture and church and preachers and pastors and, and, and other believers and, and, and spouses and friends to speak into our lives. God actually desires an intimacy with us that provides guidance with us. This holy and great God that is beyond all things actually wants to get alone with you. And as we were reminded from the prophet Elijah, he often speaks to us, what? In a still, small voice. This is our God. How good is He? That He has the time and the space and the affection and the love to speak to you like that and to guide you 
But David reminds us that there is a prerequisite to experiencing the goodness of God in his guidance. Do you notice this? He says, who does God teach and instruct? He teaches and he instructs the humble. Right? Let me translate that. God teaches the teachable. (laughs) Does that make sense? Right? That is those who are looking for guidance, true guidance. Those who are looking to be formed in God's ways, God instructs them. Those who are looking for intimacy with God, God meets them in those places. In other words, if you are not experiencing the guidance of God, and and listen, by guidance of God, I don't mean like uh, you go home today and there'll be an email in your inbox that gives you the answer to all the questions you're trying to figure out for the next segment of your life. I'm just talking about to be able to move forward and take the next step and keep going. If you're not experiencing that, let me just be honest with you, the issue isn't, is God good enough to provide it? The issue is, are you humble enough to receive it? You see it? Right? And humility means like being part of a church and connecting into it. It means making space for the Scriptures. It means pursuing intimacy with God and engaging in all of those ways. David reminds his soul, we know that God is good. Look at all He's done to guide us. God meets those who are stuck. Meets those who are uncertain. And He guides them. But we also know that God is good because He meets those who are living in the weight of their guilt. And He offers forgiveness. A great verse. If you're a person who memorizes Scripture, you ought to memorize this verse, right? Where, where David speaks and he says, Remember me not according to the sin of my youth, but according to your love. Right? And I'm paraphrasing. Because David is, is speaking as if he's commanding God, but he's not. This is what God does. He's speaking truth about who God is. How does David know this? Well, he's got all the incidents from the story of Abraham all the way to the beginning and all the way back to the garden if you want to go that farther. But he doesn't even need to go to the history of Israel. He can go into his own life. David knows this. But there are times when you get distance from the forgiveness of God in your mind and in your heart and you start to wonder, oh man, look at me. Look what I did. Guilty over this. Is God punishing me because of the things I've done? Is that why I'm experiencing these things? What are we asking? We're asking, is God good? Right? Or is no, wait, is this what I'm experiencing actually is God isn't good? He's actually going to get me because I screwed up way back when, let alone a couple minutes ago. But this isn't who God is. He does remember us according to His love. Let me give you an example. A little bit later today, Uh, before the Phillies game, they were going to honor the 1980 World Series Phillies team, right? And I'm excited about this. Uh, I was two in 1980, so I don't remember much about it, but I I have heroes from that team a little bit later on. But but a guy guy I loved growing up was Pete Rose. If anyone knows baseball, you know where I'm going with this, right? Pete Rose, and I I don't even remember on the Phillies. He was, you know, most of his career was the Reds, and I remember with the Reds later, he was like, he was the coolest thing because he was not only a player, but he was the manager. I remember those days when he liked baseball. 
He was like making the lineups and he was in the lineup, right? Uh, he was doing other things too. We'll find out in a second. <laughs> but he has the most career hits of anyone. Like I had an idol. I remember like eating enough weedy boxes to cut the purchase price off to send to send them in to get this big poster of Pete Rose from when he broke the hit record. I loved Pete Rose. It turns out all that time he was like a really bad guy, like betting on baseball games that he was participating in. And because of that, he's been banned from baseball for life. But he's got special permission to come to this ceremony a little bit later today. You know what I think about Pete Rose? I don't remember him according to the guilt. I remember, I remember him as a kid who I just loved him. So here I am, 44 years old, able to discern good and bad a little bit better, and able to actually say, this guy's, and, and, and personally, like, he's, not, he's actually not a good guy, right? But you know who's excited to tune in early to the Phillies game today? To see Pete Rose? It's me, because I remember him according to my love. This is how God thinks of you. We can't get this through our thick skulls, because we're not convinced that God is actually good. That He remembers you according to His covenant love. Not your rebellion or your guilt or your sinfulness. He is not out there you know, bringing uh, thunderbolts and, and, or th- lightning bolts and thunder into your life because you messed up a couple of days ago. There's uh, thunder and lightning bolts because you live in a broken world. David is preaching to his soul the truth about who God is. He's good. He forgives. But it's not just that he forgives those who are experiencing guilt. We know the goodness of God because we see His gaze in the midst of our pain. See the words that David used in this psalm? The first word he uses is turn. Right? And in the actual Hebrew language, it means face me. Right? Look me in the eyes. And then he uses two words for look. Or he uses the word look twice. Same Hebrew word. It actually means not like look, like take a glance, like take a picture of me. It's look like Get the full picture of what's going on here. Right? And this is what David is preaching to his heart. This is what God does. God doesn't give passing glances. He sees your experience in its totality and for what it's worth. He's near. He cares. He loves. That God would actually come near in those moments and provide care and affection and closeness and love. That David was not alone in the cave when he was on the run from Saul. Or was not alone when he had to eat the holy bread because he was so hungry and when he was running away. He was not alone when he had fleed because Absalom had, had taken the reign. He was not alone as he wept outside the door from his dying son. That God was there and close and proximate. And then he tells his heart that we know that God is good not just because he gazes on those who are in pain, because he guards those who are afraid. Guards those who are afraid. This is how he ends the whole psalm, basically. He says, listen, Guard my life. Again, bad translation. It's really guard my soul, right? Nefesh, living the, the, 
the source of life inside of me, right? Guard my heart. Uh, the idea isn't like, make it go away. The idea is keep me from utter destruction, you know? I remember when I was a kid, um, uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't big on rides, but we went to, to Disney World, and my parents got me on um, Thunder Mountain. Remember that? And you're all like, Thunder Mountain, what about? But as like a 10-year-old or 8-year-old or however old I was, kid, I was terrified. I was petrified of Thunder Mountain because it's like a train that's off the track. Like it's like it's loose and it's going and it's turning all over the place and doing all these things, right? There's a sense in which Thunder Mountain is a good illustration for life. Like, God's not saying there are going to be twists and turns and hills and up and stuff, but it doesn't go off the tracks, right? And you make it back where you're supposed to be. There's a sense where David is telling his soul, like, listen, God hasn't promised easy, but He has promised protection. And he goes on, and the next word is translated protect or preserve. It's a stronger word for guard. Preserve my life. Keep me. And here I think he's talking about the totality of his life. Like, in other words, keep me on your course. Keep me with you. Don't let my mind or my heart change their focus on who you are. See what David has done? He's been honest about what he's feeling. He's gone deep into his soul to ask the real questions. And he has then preached a wonderful four-point sermon to his soul, which we are all capable of doing. That yes, the Lord is good. And you might use different words or different examples than David did. But we have to get good at preaching these sermons to our souls. Because what is the transformative response of David? How does he end all of this? Right? It's not uh, at the beginning. At the end it says, so I will wait. You hear this? And the word wait is the Hebrew word hope. Right? That's the word we get our church name from. And we've talked about this all the time. We chose the name Hope, not just because it's an interesting Bible word, but because it is a fully dependent Bible word. (laughs) In other words, God, we're in your camp. You do it. This idea of hope is an inner decidedness about the goodness of God that allows us to endure the twists and turns and chaos of life in a broken world. Hope. But guess what, friends? We have even greater reason to know that God is good than David. Can you imagine that? 2,000 or even more than 2,000 years later after David. This guy who saw God help him slay a giant and, and rise unexpectedly to, to power and leadership and expand the kingdom and all these things that God did for David. And we can actually say that you and me, regular people in the world, that we're, our names aren't shown up in the Bible or anything like that, we can actually say that we actually have greater truth that God is good than even David. Why? Because we know Jesus. Think about the story of Jesus. That He would come to this earth. Why? Because the gaze of God is on us. 
He sees the pain and the brokenness of this world. That's why Jesus came. That He would die on a cross. Why? Because He knows the guilt of humanity. And forgiveness is delivered once and for all at the cross of Calvary. That He Himself would endure pain that sin and death bring so that we might be free of guilt. And then that He might rise from the dead, not so we'd have the coolest of cool stories, but so that He could make good on what He had said earlier in the Gospel of John. That for those who are looking for a way forward, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. How do you see the goodness of God? How do you know that God's gaze is on you? Jesus. How do you know that God forgives your guilt? Jesus. How do you know that God has provided a path forward, not just a destination location? Jesus. And because of Jesus, we can be certain that God also guards our hearts. Listen to what Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 7. Oh, it's before that. Rejoice in, that's all right. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Now, you remember when Paul's writing this, right? He's writing all these words about rejoice and happiness and whatever, right? It's not from a cottage in the Riviera somewhere, right? He's not getting great alpine views of things. He's not on a, a wonderful vacation. He's not even sitting in uh, uncomfortable wooden chairs at Spring Garden Elementary School. No, he's in prison. <laughs> he's in prison, why? Because he's tried to live Jesus' way. Right? He's ultimately asking the question, hey, this doesn't seem to be going the way <laughs> we expected it should. And oh, by the way, he's not just in prison, he's paying rent for his prison cell. Right? This is crazy stuff. He's like, oh, rejoice. And, and I'll say you again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all oh, the Lord. Listen, to the Lord is near. He knows these are questions of the soul. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Get truthful about how you're feeling. And the peace of God, the shalom, the wholeness, which transcends all understanding, listen to it, will guard your hearts and your minds. How? In Christ Jesus because of who He is and what He's done. So what do we do then? What does Paul say we do on the basis of this? How do we move forward? i got to tell you, most of us, we read a verse like that and we're, we think like, okay, if I pray hard enough, if I, if I squeeze my fingers together hard enough, if I try really hard to pray hard and my mind wonder, if I get really spiritual, then I'm going to feel this, whoo, this peace. Like there's a bubble over me. And I'm not trying to to demean any, experience, any experiential times you've had with God where you felt that, that can be real. That's not how it happens, though, right? What Paul say? If you want to feel that, do you know what you have to do? You have to be honest about the questions of your soul, and oh, by the way, you've got to what? Preach the Gospel to your soul. What's the next verse? Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What is he saying? Preach the gospel to your soul. And you will believe the goodness of God 
and the result will be a hope and or a peace that transcends all understanding. Can I pray with you?